Uh, so this morning, we're actually going to continue a little bit of the story from about three weeks ago. So if you'll recall, 2 Kings chapter 5, we started in verse 1. Today, we're going to be in a studying verses 15 to 27. Um, so we'll start with the reading first. Then he, Naaman, returned to Elisha, the man of God, with all his camp, and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So now please take a blessing from your servant. But he said, As Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I will, not, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Uh-oh. It's either, I'm either too short or... <laughs> uh, so Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to Yahweh. In this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, Yahweh pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. So he went from him some distance. Then Gehazi, the young man of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As Yahweh lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman, and Naaman saw one running after him. So he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all at peace? And he said, All is at peace. My master sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. So then Naaman said, be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver into two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his young men. And they carried them before him. So he came to the hill and he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house. Then he sent the men away and they departed. But he, Gehazi, came in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is this a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female slaves? Thus the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your seed forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. Just kind of a, uh, a recap of, of where we are. So... We are in the northern kingdom, uh, Israel, the capital is Samaria, and then near the top again is Damascus, and that's where Naaman traveled from, to Samaria. And what happened just before these verses is that um, Naaman was told that he had to travel 30 miles east to the Jordan River and dip himself in there and he would be healed of leprosy, which he did. And so now Naaman returns to Elijah's house, and this is where we pick things up. So, then Naaman returned to the man of God, he and all the people in his group, and stood before him. He said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel, so now accept a blessing and gift from your servant. But Elisha said, As Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I will accept nothing. And he urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. So, 
picking up where we left off in the account of Naaman, here in verse 15 that we see Naaman wants to bless Elisha with a, with a gift, a gift of thanks for the healing. And culturally during that time, if a gift was offered, usually the, the receiver typically would say, oh, no, 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 it's, a, it's, it's okay, uh, even though they really wanted that gift. Uh, and so the expectation is, is that the giver would continue to urge them, which is why Naaman is urging Elisha, uh, until eventually the person says, oh, okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. But in this case, Elisha refuses, and he actually makes an oath in God's name that he would take no payment um, because, as we learned from the previous lesson, that it wasn't Elisha who had healed Naaman, it was God. So Elisha will take no credit, nor will he take any payment for what God has done. So Naaman responds, If not, then please let your servant be given a load of earth for a team of mules, for from this day on, your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering nor a sacrifice to other gods, but only to Yahweh, the God of Israel. In this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant. When my master, the king, goes into the house of his god, Ramon, to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow in the house of Ramon, when I bow in the house of Ramon, may Yahweh pardon your servant in this matter of attending the king when he worships. Elijah said to him, Go in peace. So Naaman departed and was a good distance away from him. So in this passage, two questions pop up. The first is, why is he taking dirt from the ground and bringing it home? Um, so in ancient times, uh, there, it was believed that a god could only be worshipped on the ground upon which they ruled. And so they believed that also that gods had their own territories, like some of us own property. And so Naaman believed that he could only worship the one true god properly if he brought home dirt from Israel. And this is the reason why some people today, it's, uh, they'll bring home water, they'll bring home dirt, they'll bring home some type of, some type of souvenir from, uh, from the Holy Land or from a shrine. It's this sort of belief of taking something with you from that place um, it has, its, has its roots back in, in ancient times. And uh, actually, the, the late Dr. Michael Heiser says that another reason why Naaman wanted dirt was because of a much older spiritual concept of being in a safe zone, so to speak. Yeah, and, and Dr. Heiser calls it cosmic geography. Um, and so, long, so as long as you are standing on God's turf, so long as you stay on his property, you're safe. Because outside in the wilderness, there's all sorts of nasty things out there. And some of those territories were believed to be ruled by uh, and under, to, believed to be under the dominion of evil spirits. And what Naaman planned to do with the dirt no one knows. He, some believe that he was going to lay it out in his house or maybe somewhere on his property and build an altar where he could worship the one true God. And the second thing that Naaman, that we see about Naaman is that he also asked for pardon because while he does have to do his duty and take the king of Aram to the temple of Ramon, his faith is in Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And Elisha's answer to Naaman is go in peace. So basically he's saying, from now on, you need to submit yourself to God's mercy and follow God wherever he leads you. And while this is going on, while this exchange is going on, Elisha's servant Gehazi is standing there as Naaman is offering this gift to Elijah. And it's actually just a portion of what Naaman brought. You'll recall in the last lesson that Naaman actually brought $3.3 million worth of gold, silver, and clothing with him. And so Naaman is offering uh, a gift to, to Elisha. And Gehazi is watching this, and one moment he's probably mentally cheering Elisha on. He's saying, yes, 
take the money, take, take the gold, take the silver, take whatever he offers. And then the next minute, Elisha says, no, no, no I'm, I'm not going to take it. And, and Gehazi is probably wondering, what's, what's wrong with you? He's, this is gold. This is, you know, imagine what we can, use, we can do with all this money. Why are you saying no? But Elisha says no. He refuses. And so Naaman and his caravan ride off and they start their 100-mile trip back to Damascus, which brings us, back, which brings us to our next set, next set of verses. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, My master has spared this Naaman the Aramean by not accepting from him what he brought. As Yahweh lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi's name translates into Valley of Vision, and it hints at where he, he sees his future going. Because in Gehazi's mind, there's a price to be paid for this miraculous healing, and Naaman hasn't paid that price. So first he calls Naaman the Aramean, which hints at kind of a disdain for Naaman. Uh, there's a bias in what he's saying because he's not seeing Naaman as a spiritual brother. He's still seeing him as an enemy. And he can't accept the fact that, that Naaman was genuinely converted to be a believer and follower of the one true God. And Gehazi, from what we can tell here, is also seeing his master Elisha as being very soft. Um, in Gehazi's mind, Elisha should have taken the money, and, and why not? It was being offered. And Elisha provided a service or so, Gehazi thought, so why not get paid? And we see in here that Gehazi's take is kind of how a lot of people would, would view this situation. Gehazi was, was basically judging his master, Elisha, based on his own personal standards. He wasn't looking at Elijah as God was looking at Elisha. Uh, Gehazi was, was failing to understand that none of the glory and none of the reward for Naaman's healing belongs to Elisha. And the second thing that we see here is that, Elisha, uh, that Gehazi swears on the, name of, uh, on the name of Yahweh. So Elisha also does the same thing, and I'll pull it up for you here. So you see that Elisha in verse 16 says, As Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I will accept nothing. Um, and when a person typically says, as Yahweh lives, that's almost like saying, so help me God, or as God is my witness. And you'll see that Gehazi also says, as Yahweh lives, I will run after him and get something. So what, what Gehazi is actually doing here is he's actually taking the name of the Lord in vain. So instead of revering God's name and saying that he won't do something like Elisha did, Gehazi is now insulting, he's now degrading, he's now demeaning God's name, and he's now tying God's name to the sin that he intends to commit. It's misusing God's name for selfish purposes. And notice the, the difference here between what Elisha says and what Gehazi says. Uh, Elisha again says, as Yahweh lives before whom I stand, other translations will have it as before whom I serve. Um, it means the same thing, and, and Elisha knows that he has to answer to someone. Whereas you see Gehazi, he says, well, as, as, God, as God lives, I'm going to chase this guy down and get something from him. And that, that's where the problem starts. It starts with, I will. It's my will. It's not God's will. It's my will. I will do this because this is what I want to do. Instead of giving thanks to God um, that a pagan was converted, Gehazi can only think of, well, what's, what's in it for me? And this is what happens. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, 
Just now, two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. So here's the first lie. Naaman sees this guy running after him, pursuing him, according to the translation, and the Hebrew word for pursue means that Gehazi was running after Naaman with urgency. And there's an alternate translation as well and an alternate meaning that the, where pursued is very similar to a hunter going after its prey. So Naaman sees Gehazi and he asks, is all well? And Gehazi says, all is well. Well, obviously it, uh, all is not well because Naaman as a brand new convert is about to get scammed. And then here's a second lie. My master sent me. And this would be easy for Naaman to, to believe because surely he would have seen Gehazi in Elisha's presence. Maybe, maybe Gehazi was the messenger that, if you recall from the previous lesson, that Elisha sent to the door to tell Naaman to go dip himself in the Jordan River seven times and he would be healed of, of leprosy. So he would have been familiar possibly with Gehazi who, who could have been standing there. And so Naaman has no reason not to trust what Gehazi says when he says, my master sent me. Maybe Elisha had more parting words for Naaman that he just wanted to convey and didn't have a chance to. And here's the third lie. Two young men of the sons of the prophet, and they're basically, they are in need. Um, and Naaman is, Naaman is convinced. Maybe these two guys didn't even exist, or, or, or maybe, maybe they did. But Naaman believes Gehazi, and, and why shouldn't he? And if we look at these three lies, you see that the first lie just involves Gehazi. The second lie expands it, so now it's Gehazi and Elisha. And now the third lie gets even wider and broader, and now it involves not just Gehazi and Elisha, but now it involves potentially some servants of Gehazi. And so this is what Naaman does. Naaman says, please take two talents. And he urged him to accept and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants. And they carried them in front of Gehazi. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house for safekeeping. And he sent the men away, and they left. So two talents of silver in today's dollars is about $41,000. So this would have been a, a pretty significant amount to the servant of a, of a poor prophet. And Naaman urges Gehazi, just like he urged Elisha, um, to take this. And in fact, he gives him more than he asked for. He gives him the two talents. And not only does, does he give Gehazi more than he asks, he also gets two of his own servants to carry these things for Gehazi. And if you'll notice here that they carry them in front of Gehazi, uh, almost as if the, uh, the writer here is implying that maybe as they tried to approach the city, maybe that they could potentially be in front of Gehazi so no one would see Gehazi as they were entering the city. That's a possibility. And Gehazi takes the spoils and hides them in a house, probably Elisha's house. So now Elisha has ill-gotten gains stored in his home. And so the next verse, so he stored all these things away and he, Gehazi, went in and stood before his master. Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? He said, your servant went nowhere. Elisha said to him, did my heart not go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a proper time to accept money and clothing and olive orchards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? So now we see here the final lie to Elisha himself. It's as if Gehazi 
just walked into the room and nothing has happened and he's been in Elisha's home the entire time. Oh, I, I didn't go anywhere. I've, I've been here all this time, Master. I don't, don't know what you're talking about. But God had communicated to Elisha what Gehazi had done. And we don't know how God communicated it to Elisha. Um, we do know that um, from previous uh, records in Second Kings that this sort of thing didn't happen to Elijah that often. It wasn't a consistent thing. Sometimes he was given this, these messages from God. Sometimes he wasn't. But God communicated more than just the fact that Gehazi lied. When Elisha asked, is this the proper time to accept these things, he was seeing or was told by God what Gehazi planned to do with the silver that he took from Naaman. And based on these things that, that Elisha mentions, we can see that Gehazi wanted to live a lot better than he was living. Uh, maybe he wanted to live exactly like Naaman. Maybe he wanted to be like Naaman with, with servants and land and, and, and animals and instead of him being a servant to a prophet. Like he, he probably had the attitude of, I want people to serve me now. I want to be somebody and I'm going to use Naaman's money to do it. And remember that, that sin at its core is going against the will of God, whether it's eating a fruit from a tree that God has forbidden or taking the glory that rightfully belongs to God and using it for your own means. So by asking for money, Gehazi robbed God of the glory of Naaman's healing. And there's a penalty for sin that is not acknowledged and repented of. And so Elisha says, therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So Gehazi departed from his presence, a leper as white as snow. So this is the, this is the judgment of God being pronounced upon Gehazi. And it happened in an instant. If we were all in the, there at that time watching this happen, right before our eyes, Gehazi's skin went from normal to, to diseased. And as we learned from the previous lesson, most signs of leprosy started with the red spots, uh, which eventually turned into patches of white skin. So what we're seeing here is that all of a Gehazi's skin that, that they could see turned white. Um, his entire body, most likely, even under the clothing, was, was diseased. And now, just like Naaman, prior to Naaman's conversion, where he had a physical representation of a spiritual problem, now Gehazi's true nature is brought to the surface. And notice that Gehazi says nothing. After this, he just leaves in silence. And he leaves in silence knowing that his disease will pass from him onto his descendants forever, generation after generation after generation, inheriting this disease because of that one relative who robbed God of the glory that only belongs to God. And you, from, you can see, from what you can see in this verse, there's, there's no repentance at all from Gehazi. Could there have been, could things have possibly been different if Gehazi had repented? Probably, but we'll never know because Gehazi didn't repent. He decided to leave in silence. And you also notice here that Elisha says nothing about the silver and the clothes because Gehazi can keep all of the items that he took from Naaman. Like he could purchase the land, he can purchase the, the vineyards, he can purchase the olive groves, he can get slaves, male and female slaves or male and female servants. He can get all those things that he dreamed of, but he lost his health and he, probably because we know that leprosy is fatal, that he would ultimately never had a chance to enjoy all of these things that he planned to buy. 
knowing all too late what it cost him. And even though Gehazi's name is actually mentioned briefly three chapters later, uh, most scholars actually agree that our study passages that we have now are the last time in biblical chronology that we actually see of Gehazi. The events that happened in, in 2 Kings chapter 8 most likely occurred prior to this encounter with Naaman, so it, almost like it's a flashback. So Na uh, Gehazi's name goes down in infamy. Um, while this isn't the last place where we see Na Naaman's name mentioned, he's actually mentioned in the New Testament in Luke chapter 4 by the Lord Jesus Christ as an example of God's grace being extended outside of Israel's borders to the Gentiles. So 850 years after the events of 2 Kings chapter 5 and Jesus begins his ministry, he actually mentions Naaman. And when the people in the synagogue heard Jesus mention Naaman, they actually got angry and they drove Jesus out of the synagogue and they drove him out of town and that, that was the, that's the incident where they tried to throw him off a cliff because they couldn't believe that anyone other than the Jews were worthy of salvation. So here we have two men, one a Gentile who didn't know God and came to faith in God and one who didn't really know God and who ended up gaining worldly things and losing eternity with God. So just give you four things about Gehazi and then we'll have three questions. So the first thing about Gehazi is that he was in the presence of a godly man, but Gehazi himself was not godly. So he served a great prophet, a, a prophet who had actually asked for a double portion of his predecessor's blessing. And Gehazi lived in an environment where serving God and being humble and being righteous in the eyes of God were modeled daily by Elisha and, and yet it didn't stick in his head. And if you, if you go forward in biblical history, when the Lord Jesus Christ sent his 12 apostles out two by two to heal the sick and cast out demons, Judas Iscariot was actually one of the 12 that Jesus sent out. Judas was in the presence of the son of the living God, healing people and driving out unclean spirits. And yet, like Gehazi, he still failed. Gehazi saw himself worthy of God's grace, but he didn't think that Naaman, a foreigner, was worthy of it. Whereas Elisha didn't even, didn't have that type of bias. And it was a late Billy Graham um, who said that all of us are on level ground when we stand before the cross of Christ. Rich or poor, famous or anonymous, no one is better than the other, than anyone else. No one stands higher than anyone else when we stand before the cross of Christ. So why should we treat each other any differently th than the cross of Christ treats us? Second thing, all of our sins are seen by God. God is eternal and God is omniscient. He sees all and knows all, and sometimes he will speak through other people to reveal our sins because God knows and we know that sin begets more sin and, and lies beget more lies, and if you lie once about something, you'll probably lie more just to cover up that first lie. And Gehazi's sin damaged the credibility of his own ministry, and it could have damaged Elisha's if Naaman had found out that Gehazi was lying. And what would that have done um, to God's reputation in the eyes of Naaman? He'd just been converted, and now he sees that one of the, peop one of the servants of God is now lying to him. God sees, sees where our sins are, are going and who it's going to affect in the future. And Gehazi's sin... Uh, affected the health of his future descendants. He didn't think of them when he took the silver and the clothes from Naaman. 
He was only thinking of himself. Third point. Love can be a sin when you direct your love towards the wrong object. So if you love yourself, your actions will absolutely show it. You'll ignore the needs of others, you'll diminish the needs of others, and you'll, you'll demean the contributions of others while caring only of yourself and of your own needs. If you love your reputation, your actions will absolutely show it. You'll defend what's said about you, and, but you'll, you'll bring others down to make yourself look good. You'll have a double standard and protect those who could damage your reputation even if you know they're wrong. And if you love things, your actions will absolutely show it. You'll collect what you want and take from others because what they have is what you want or you'll make sure that they can never have what you want. If you channel your love to anything or anyone other than God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, then you've actually created an idol and you've just violated the first commandment. Fourth point, sin can eventually become fatal if you don't let it go. And sin is like a, like a mousetrap. You know, you know that mouse wants that piece of cheese and we know what happens to the mouse when they're grasping at the cheese and when that mousetrap slaps shut. And Charles Spurgeon wrote, how much better it is to hold it in your hand than to have it in your heart. Goods in the hand will not hurt you, but goods in the heart will destroy you. Not long ago, a burglar escaping from a policeman leapt into Regent's Canal and was drowned. He was drowned by the weight of the silver which he had plundered. How many there are who have made a god of, of their wealth and in hasting after riches have been drowned by the weight of their worldly substance? So if you have something in your hand, you can let it go if you want to, but once it's in the heart, once it's in the mind, once it's in the soul, it can drag you down. So I'll leave you with three questions that Gehazi should have asked himself. Whose will are you following? Uh, who or what we follow will always be revealed to others through our actions and through our words. Our, our personal witness and uh, ministry needs to line up with the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, not with the world's. Day by day, the Holy Spirit works on us uh, through the personal reading of God's word, through through the lessons that are, that, that are taught and through ministry to others. And that work makes us less like Gehazi and more like Christ, if we're willing and obedient to follow. Ministry is not about money, it's, it's not about fame. Um, yes, for some, they, it, it, ministry is a way that some people make a living and there's nothing wrong with a minister accepting payment or for preaching if they so wish or if they're employed in full-time ministry, but they're too many examples of people who turn their ministry into a money-making venture and then they let things get out of control because it becomes a competition. It becomes more about numbers than about genuine conversion. It becomes more about increasing income so you can get a bigger or a larger space or because a church down the street has a bigger name than your churches. It becomes more about getting your name out there instead of glorifying the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are very, very few people who can handle money and power and status properly. And there are very few professing Christians who can handle those things without being corrupted. Um, because once you have all of those things, and for 99.99%, we can keep adding nines there, for, for that percentage of us, when we have all these things, when we have money, when we have fame, when we have power, and we have reputation, and we have riches, it's hard to give that up and go back. It's, it's, it's very hard for a lot of people to give that up. And in the end, if we can't give that up, we end up being like Gehazi. 
preferring things that glorify us here on earth. So the second question, are you living in the wilderness or are you living on God's turf? So the wilderness is the wrong place to be for most people. And we have missionaries who go out into the wilderness of the world to spread the gospel. We have fellow Christians who go into the rougher areas to minister to the poor. Those people are led by the Holy Spirit and go with the Spirit. And God gave us his Holy Spirit to keep us on his spiritual turf. When, when we listen to the Holy Spirit, he may lead us to, to places where we may not want to go and along a path where there are scary things out there in the woods and in the wilderness, but the Holy Spirit is with us all the way, pressing us on to do God's will, not our own. When we go astray, when we want to see what's out there in the darkness, when we ignore the pleading of the Holy Spirit telling us, don't do it, please don't go there, Stop thinking those thoughts. Stop being jealous of that person who, has, who it looks like has things better than you. Stop being angry at him. Stop lusting over her. And we, when we ignore the pleading of the Holy Spirit, then we become like Gehazi. It's better to live in God's kingdom as a poor, unknown servant than to live in the wilderness with all the money and all the fame and all the respect in the world and yet have a spiritual disease that money or man can't cure. And the final question, where are you going? When it comes to following Christ or running our own way, most of us can turn into a flight risk. We resist because we're creatures of habit, even if that habit is habitual sin. So, so are you a flight risk when it comes to obeying God? Are you running towards some type of sin right now? Or are you running in repentance towards God? And, and it's, it's an open-ended question that only you can answer in the privacy of your own thoughts. Um, it's, and it's an intentional one because we all get swept up in the busyness of the world and we get lost. And sometimes we need to stop and remember where we're going because most of us will forget. And, it, and it's always good to stop daily and think about where we're going, to think about where our decisions are taking us every hour, every day where that decision is going to lead us in the evening or tomorrow or next week or next year, who that decision is going to affect. Is it going to affect your relationship with God? Is it going to reflect, uh, affect your relationship with family? Is it going to affect your relationship with friends? And this lesson, it, it actually serves as a jumping off point for a lesson that we're going to have in three weeks. Uh, John will be presenting a lesson. I forgot to ask you, sorry, what you might be presenting on still deciding so we'll we'll be able to enjoy john's lesson when when he has it next week um and then three sundays from now memorial day weekend we'll begin a series of lessons that will last a, a few weeks throughout the summer looking at the second coming of the lord jesus christ and examine the promises that he makes when he returns and the signs of his impending return because when jesus does return whether he takes us individually or all together as his church you'll either be found to be an Amen or a Gehazi, and Gehazi is not the person that we want to be.